Before we begin, a special thank you to our Patreon supporters. In particular, a huge debt of thanks to our cabinet member level supporter, Arlena Frank-Waller. Your support is critical to the success of this podcast. Another thank you is owed to our ambassador-level supporters, Jeff Flores and Todd Kent. Thank you to all of our patrons for making this episode possible. Together, we are reaching the top government podcast charts in countries ranging from Europe to Asia, and we are just getting started. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the New Diplomatist Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Garrison Morado, and today I'm very honored to have a special guest back on the podcast, Dr. Nick Wright of University College London. Dr. Wright, thank you so much for coming back on board the New Diplomatist. Thank you very much indeed for having me back, Garrison. It's nice to, nice to be able to join you again. Well, it's great to have you on, and we have a lot to cover today, so I guess we might as well jump right into it. And we'll start with the latest updates regarding the United Kingdom and the AstraZeneca vaccine and the European Commission, which is always an interesting triangle. Some interesting news breaking just literally a few hours before we started recording this today, Friday, March 26th, which was that the EU Commission will stop short of a full vaccine export ban. We've heard that phrase sort of bandied about a lot, especially on the American side of the publications, export ban. Could you give a survey of what this issue has been up to now and then we can get into some of the political consequences of it? Absolutely. I mean, there's a number of factors here. The first is that the European Commission, which is the, if you like, the executive body, like the civil service of bureaucracy that is responsible for EU level policy, its big role has been to, to procure vaccines for EU member states and to support member states in rolling them out. Now, because the EU's got quite a complicated structure, health policy is something that remains predominant under the control of member state governments. But the EU, if you like, adds value to all of this by being able to procure medicines, in this case vaccines. But the procurement process seems to have gone through some, some very significant difficulties over the last few months. And there's been a big dispute, particularly with the pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca, over how many vaccines it promised to supply to the EU and how many it has actually been supplying. One of the biggest issues has been the fact that the UK seems to have been getting a major supply of vaccines from AstraZeneca, whilst the EU has not. And so this has been a cause of considerable tension. And at heart is a concern by EU member states that essentially they are losing out, not necessarily just the United Kingdom. I think it's, it's too easy just to focus on the UK in this. But basically that they are not getting an adequate share of vaccines from companies operating in the European Union and that there are issues with the contracts that were negotiated between the Commission and between the pharmaceutical companies. There's a lot of kind of, sort of technical, legal and contractual problems here. But politically, it's taken on a kind of a rather nasty characteristic. There's been accusations of vaccine nationalism and it's kind of got caught up in the whole post-Brexit EU-UK relationship turbulence as well. It's become another factor in what has been quite a difficult relationship between London and the rest of Europe since the start of this year. But the big issue seems to be, to me anyway, that the European Commission has not done a brilliant job 
in terms of vaccine procurement. It's obviously had a lot of challenges to deal with. I'm not sure the degree to which the, particularly the, the highest level leadership within the Commission has really been effective. And that played out as well at the start of this year with the so-called Article 16 fiasco, when apparently, you know, for about three hours, it appeared that the European Commission was going to place export controls on anything going to Northern Ireland, which obviously triggered all sorts of concerns there about the Northern Ireland Protocol, which had only just come into force. So there's a lot of politics here, but at the heart, it's a concern about the capacity of pharmaceutical companies to deliver on their promises and the ability of member state governments in the EU to actually roll the vaccine out to their people. They were, according to the BBC, expecting to receive only about 30 million AstraZeneca doses by the end of March. And to put that in perspective, that's less than a third of what they were originally hoping for. But it is interesting to see, though, isn't it, that European Commission, which had for much of the last, I would say, particularly two years of intensive negotiations with London, had been accusing London of acting in sort of a nationalistic, throwback, protectionist manner of, of pulling away from the free trade zone, pulling away from Europe, erecting barriers, if you will. And then the moment that Brexit is, is largely finalized and, and that the trade agreement's done, you have this entire spat regarding vaccines. And all of a sudden, it's Brussels yeah. on the back foot with a PR campaign yeah. from Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying, this is a blockade, it's not sensible, you know, you're behaving bad. Even the World Health Organization accusing them, like you said, of vaccine nationalism. Yeah. Why do you think that the EU Commission risked such a, a rapid swing in public perception on this issue? At the core of all this is an entirely understandable level of concerns, you know, within individual member states amongst domestic populations going, where are our vaccines? And getting becoming very, very critical of governments that are not rolling out vaccine programs sufficiently quickly and we you know that's entirely understandable but then obviously pressure concern and criticism filters upwards member state governments then look to the commission and blame the commission for for its missteps and to be fair the commission you know in this particular context it seems from the outside at least to have struggled quite a lot to get on top of this and again it's not alone there's national governments across the world have struggled with this so it's no surprise that the commission has as well but i think the way then that this kind of manifests itself is it, it starts to be seen as you know the eu risk being seen as lashing out against others and it starts to feel a little bit like well the, the eu particularly angry with the, with the uk because the, the one part of the uk's response to covid that has worked well has been the vaccine rollout but i think it is interesting to that the commission were proposing some quite strict mechanisms and quite severe mechanisms in terms of limiting vaccine exports and actually the member states pull back on that and they wouldn't go the full way on this because they're very concerned that actually if you start going down that pathway you and you start to be seen as acting in a protectionist way that kind of undermines the whole premise of what the eu is supposed to be about particularly in terms of its image and international trade and so the member states have kind of you know said we're not we're not prepared to go that far and equally the uk and and the eu are on the verge it seems of negotiating a kind of a pragmatic solution to this to this issue but i think the big thing you know not to lose sight of is ultimately this is about supply problems from private enterprises as a pharmaceutical company that has promised to deliver a certain amount of vaccines to its customers and has not been able to do that for a variety of reasons. But at the heart of all this, there's a commercial dispute and this has it's become very magnified and become very politicised very quickly for obvious reasons. Well, and of course, it has well, been a pretty remarkable a process pretty remarkable to go from an outbreak of a novel coronavirus disease in late 2019, early 2020, have less than a year really to develop vaccines and then ramp up to yeah. mass, literally globe-spanning production for these companies, whether it's Pfizer, Moderna, or in the case of Europe, AstraZeneca. It's been quite, the, quite the shift. But before we leave this topic, I do want to touch on just that political aspect you mentioned. 
you know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from an American perspective, if I can speak from that, it, it seemed that Brexit and the process of Brexit upended British politics temporarily at the very least for about five or six year period where traditional left-right alignment, I think you mentioned on your first interview, sir, when you came on board the podcast last year, mm-hmm. has kind of been upended between leave and remain. You know, you might have been Labour first before or can you know Tory first before, but some of that gets shifted when it becomes a question of do we remain in the EU or do we leave? You know, and you might have leavers who are Labour and remainers who are Conservative and, and things become jumbled. Do you think that we're witnessing the first post-Brexit political moment for Britain? And what I mean by that is, 67%, according to an Ipsos poll surveyed in Britain, thought that the UK had performed better on vaccinations than EU countries. That surely includes Tory and Labour voters in, in yeah. addition to the, the other minor parties. With some of these, I know it's just very early days, but with some of these issues starting to become more issues of government competence again, rather than issues of being in or out of the EU because they're out, does, does traditional right-left alignment start to become a thing again? It's a really good question. I mean, the first thing I'd say is that British politics, you're absolutely right to say British politics has been upended over the last few years. And, and that, that continues to this day. We are going through a very significant change in British politics, which is going to play out in the, in the coming years. And I think, I mean, certainly the pandemic and the response to the pandemic will feed into that. One of the things that the UK government, so the UK structures and state structures have done brilliantly is the vaccine rollout. But particularly so a lot of the government decisions over the last 12 months, however, have not been nearly as successful. For example, trying to the, the establishment of a so-called test and trace system that's basically has largely failed to a great extent. And I think what we'll see then is at the moment, there is a lot of support and relief because the vaccine program seems to be going so well. And particularly when we hear about what's going on on the other side of the channel on the European continent, and we look at how other countries are, are dealing with it, we're thinking, wow, gosh, we're lucky. Now, whether that's a certain, I mean, some have tried to link that to the fact that we've left the European Union. I think that's just fallacious, to be perfectly honest. We have done well with this. What then remains to be seen is what happens afterwards, particularly how the UK government manages the post, post-pandemic environment what it does to drive economic growth, get people back to work, to manage this big shift and this big change in attitudes, for example, around whether people want to actually travel to work or work from home. How do you deal with the huge inequalities that have been been revealed as a consequence of the pandemic? And all this feeds back into the government's levelling up agenda, which it made great play of during the 2019 election campaign. If the government is not able to to drive an effective recovery, that is going to start, people will start asking questions about that. And, you know, we'll start to see that in the, you know, in the run up to the next general election, which is scheduled for 2024. And the other big thing, of course, is we mustn't forget that despite the success of the vaccine rollout, the UK has one of the worst per capita death rates in the world, and certainly amongst the sort of developed and richer nations. I mean, we've, we've topped 125,000 dead mm. as a consequence of the pandemic. And these are very large numbers. And at some point people are going to want to are going to start asking questions they're going to want to know why has this happened you know how far were these deaths avoidable i think particularly if we look at what happened post christmas you may be aware that the british prime minister wanted to kind of open up a bit to allow people to kind of see each other before then reimposing a lockdown there's a massive increase in uh, hospitalizations in infections and in, and in the death rate in january and so people are going to start asking questions as to what to what extent government decision making and decisions by the prime minister may have had a direct effect on the number of people who have 
either caught this disease and or died from it. And in that sense, if you like, there is a political reckoning coming. There's a big debate at the moment about when there will be a public inquiry into into the response to COVID. And at the moment, the government's trying to sort of, you know, say, well, this is not the time to do it. We're still dealing with the pandemic, but at some point there will need to be a reckoning. And I think once people have got past the worst and they'll start to think about how this has affected them, how it's affected them personally, professionally, etc. And then we'll start to see the degree to which, you know, the normal politics has resumed, if you like. You know, and I, it will be interesting you know, to see interesting whether or not that issue not. causes problems for the, yeah. the Conservative Party in Britain. Party, you know, yeah. obviously, it's a bit of a, a bit of a stretch to compare Donald Trump to Boris Johnson, and I wouldn't dare do so mm-hmm. across the board on policies. But there is an undeniable element to which the widespread Republican losses last year in the United States was asserted to a, to a point not only to Trump's personality, but also due to their handling of the COVID crisis overall. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see if the Labour Party in Britain might be able to make a similar play against the Conservative Party. It's, I mean, it's very interesting you say that because right now, you, I mean, you, you would expect that given all the things that have happened and all the, you know, all the terrible news we've had over the last 12 months, that the opposition would be in a better position. But actually, as things stand, I think it's so the most recent poll, but Boris Johnson ahead of Keir Starmer, but the, but the Conservatives ahead of Labour. And so... Is I that a personality moment, issue, would you say? No, or? I'm not sure it's necessarily... But I, mean, I mean, I think there's probably a number of things, and I'm not a polling expert, so I wouldn't want to kind of be, be too presumptuous about that. But it does seem that for the moment, the success of the vaccine vaccine rollout has certainly been, you know, the, the, the government is certainly benefiting from that. Mm. It's very hard for an opposition, certainly at this stage in the political cycle, in any case, to get much purchase. It's even harder when parliamentary procedure, parliamentary appearances, etc., are so limited and restricted as a consequence of COVID. And in a national emergency, there is a, generally a frequent expectation that everyone will rally together and get through it. And so it's it's difficult for an opposition party to be able to do that right now. That said, I think Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, has been able to land a few punches on the Prime Minister in terms of competence. And I would expect as, you know, hopefully as we get to the other side of this and as, as we start to see a form of normality returning, I would imagine that those criticisms will pick up and there'll be much more probing and it'll be much harder for the Prime Minister to ignore that. But for now, he's in a surprisingly healthy political position, I would suggest. But it remains to be seen how, you know, a a lot can happen. Indeed. While we're on the political topic, should make a quick stop off in Scotland with interesting news breaking out this morning with Alex Salmon announcing a new pro-Scottish referendum party. What's your perception or your initial reaction? I know this only came out, I think, about an hour, an hour and a half ago before we began recording. But how does this impact the SNP, which looked set for a rather thumping win later on this spring? I think he's claiming... an attempt at a supermajority of pro-referendum parties in Holyrood, but is that is that really the result? I mean, it's a, it's a very good question. I mean, it feels like it's formalising a split within the Scottish nationalists between, if you want to call them the more, let's say, the more pragmatic wing who are, who surrounds Nicola Sturgeon. Their objective remains Scottish independence, but they want to make sure it's done using a process that is legally unimpeachable. If it needs to take some time, they will allow it to take some time. This is particularly if we think about the fact that one of the bigger objectives is SNP would like to take Scotland back into the European Union. And if there's any perception at all that any kind of independence referendum is not legal, is not followed legal process, is not legitimate, then you can be sure that countries like Spain, are facing their own sort of separatist movements in Catalonia, for example, will be will be very unlikely to agree to Scotland joining the European Union. So the SNP are looking at this kind of 
for the sort of, sort of bigger picture stuff and thinking if we're going to do this if we're going to achieve this we've got to do it the right way to make sure we can we can rejoin the European Union etc 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 against our, our, what we might call the more I, I suppose the more traditionalists longer term Scottish nationalist people older with a lot more kind of experience in the kind of the, the early days of the Scottish nationalist movement they kind of support Alex Salmond the former Scottish minister who's been embroiled in scandal and controversy over the last uh, over the last few months around sort of accusations of sexual harassment of which he has been cleared but this has created a big split within the party and this has been exacerbated by uh, Alex Salmond's claims about how he feels the Scottish government under Nicola Sturgeon handled these cases there's a report earlier in the last few days that have officially cleared Nicola Sturgeon of having misled parliament for example or broken the ministerial code but there's a lot of tension within the broader Scottish nationalist movement and I think this split is probably formalising a kind of a, a, a if you like a deeper split and deeper division it's partly political it's possibly partly cultural and strategic it's also personal as well there's obviously a big split between Salmond and Sturgeon who have been you know for, who were for so long very very close politically and personally but the standard assumption would be having two parties competing for the same sets of voters will ultimately benefit the opposition but we have a system of proportional representation in Scotland so so maybe it's not necessarily as clear cut but certainly it you know you've got to assume it doesn't help the Scottish nationalist cause in the run-up to the Scottish parliamentary elections in, in a couple of months time it doesn't help that they they appear to be split and I think Alex Salmon's motives are well they're at least you know, at least partly personal in all of this. And, and, and there will be some who will be asking, well, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this now? Is this not actually more likely to damage the achievement of the cause you've championed all your political life for, you know, you know, for, for personal reasons? Now, you know, obviously, I'm sure he would push back against that very strongly, but it must be concerning for Nicola Sturgeon and the, and the leadership of the Scottish Nationalist Party to see what's been going on. It seems to me, particularly with parliamentary-based systems inside of the UK, that perhaps Alex Salmon saw with some success Nigel Farage's insider campaign. He, he moved with the Brexit party not too long ago, you know, competing yeah. with the Tories, both on a pro-exit the EU basis, but trying to not even necessarily win elections as much as push the issue quicker to ensure that there would be no faltering in terms of leave yeah. in the case of Farage or in the case of a referendum for Salmon. Is that, do you think that's a fair distinction to make? I mean, it worked out for Farage in the long run. He got what he wanted. Would you say it would happen the same for Salmon or is that too much of a stretch? I, I'm, I mean, I can, I can see where you're coming from. I'm not so sure. I mean, I think the, the, so the, the big thing is, does the, do the Scottish nationalists achieve a majority in the Scottish, in, in the Scottish parliament in May or with Alex Salmond and his party, is there a majority for Scottish nationalist parties per se, pro-referendum parties? You know, certainly if there's an SNP majority, and, and, and so a recent polling, but likely to, to win 70 out of the 129 seats, which would give them a clear majority, that makes it much, much harder for Westminster, which must approve and agree to any kind of independence referendum in Scotland. It makes it morally much harder for them to put to, to argue against that, despite, you know, 2014 was supposed to be a once in a generation, etc., etc. So if the SNP win a clear majority, then that argument becomes more challenging and more difficult and the SNP might well push... Will be, will be pushing very hard. If there's a majority for Scottish nationalism, per se, pro-referendum parties, 
it's challenging for Westminster to push back against that. But if this split actually ends up preventing a majority for pro-referendum parties, that will really set the pro-independence movement back quite significantly. It would be much easier to say, well, look, there isn't a majority in favour of this. You know, the, the opposition in Scotland, the main opposition, which is the Conservative Party, will claim, look, look at the chaos within the independence movement. Do you really, really want to risk this for the whole country by having another referendum? Of course not. It's a big gamble on the part of Alex Salmond. We'll see in the coming days how, how his new party polls and what kind of what kind of response it gets, whether it actually ends up strengthening the support for the SNP, etc. But it's a risky strategy to be to be pursuing, and I'm not sure necessarily getting what he wants. We'll see how that plays out just within the next couple of months because the Scottish elections are in May, correct? We'll correct. see. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see how his new. We'll see very soon whether this, you know, whether this has worked. I mean, it's the one thing I would say though is this must have been in the pipeline for a while. You don't just wake up one morning and launch a political party, <laughs> um, and Indeed. so. This, he, he would have been thinking about, I, I imagine he would be thinking very carefully about this, particularly in light of what the independent investigation into Nicola Sturgeon's handling of the scandal surrounding Alex Salmon, etc. All the, all the events that have come, that, that have reported back over the last the last week or so, I think he would have been waiting to see what the outcome of those would be. And the launch of a new party may well have been one of the things that's been factored into that. Well, it looks like he already has well, a very well-developed like political website for his new ALBA party launched. Uh, yeah. online and the headline i think leaves absolutely no doubt as to its intention it says now is the time and so i think you're absolutely correct yeah. in saying he wants that referendum uh now not later so i think we shouldn't you know whilst you know whilst not wishing to you know to, to critique his motives or whatever there will be a degree as with all politicians a degree of ego in all of this he has campaigned his whole life for scottish independence and i think the thought that he might be a footnote in the SNP achieving it, for example. I think he will want to be, he will, he will want to restore his reputation after what's happened to him over the last sort of 18, 24 mm. months. And I, he will see this as, as, as part of that, a way of kind of rehabilitating himself and saying, look, I was one of the people who got us independence. And I think that will be important to him. And, you know, as I say, it remains to be seen whether that strategy is going to work or how he will be judged as a consequence of this. But certainly there's a lot, there will be a number of motivations behind his decision to do this today. So it would be totally remiss if we didn't cover the much much anticipated and finally revealed UK Integrated Defence Review. Starting off with the general perception question, this was obviously anticipated for some time in COVID and, and Brexit negotiations pushed it back. How would you say it's been received generally in the British public? Has it been sort of a footnote or has it been a topic of discussion? And if so, was it a positive reception generally or what's the general mood would you say? And then we'll get into some of the, the nitty gritty. I mean, honestly, as with most things to do with foreign policy, I suspect most people barely registered it. Yes, um, You know, unless you're someone like me who's a foreign policy nerd and loves this stuff and has been, you know, champing at the bit waiting for it to be published. I mean, most this will have passed most people by. The, the, the big thing or big things that will probably have caught people's attention is, first of all, this decision to lift the cap on how many nuclear warheads the UK can have in its stockpile from 180 to potentially, I think it's 260. Mm -hmm. So that's a big, if you like, that's that's the big thing. And this is this has caused not a little controversy given the UK has, you know, been calling for kind of nuclear disarmament and, and a kind of a, a phased approach to, to, to reducing the number of warheads. This seems to turn that on its head. And the other big thing, of course, is what does it say about the UK's attitudes towards China, where we see on the one hand a desire to 
you know, develop strong commercial and trading relationships with China, but on the other hand, a concern over Chinese behavior, human rights, etc., in the Asia Pacific region. And certainly at the heart of the integrated review, is, in terms of its kind of longer term positioning, is thinking about is this so called Asia Pacific tilt, this, you know, not unlike the kind of pivot to Asia that we saw, particularly under the Obama administration, this kind of recognition of that that's where, if you like, the center of political and geopolitical gravity is going to be in the coming century. And I think the UK's you know, perhaps not before time paying attention to that. But I say it's quite ambivalent on China, as I heard one, one analyst describing, it's kind of setting out the problem without necessarily identifying clear solutions mm. or strategies. The other thing that's worth worth noting as well is this is a, I hesitate to call it a love letter to the United States and the, and the special relationship, <laughs> but certainly it's making absolutely crystal clear that the UK regards the transatlantic relationship, the security relationship with the US as, if you like, the primary bilateral relationship in terms of its foreign security and defence policy. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of statement of long-standing truth, but it's really, really clear that this is something that matters to the UK and they want, you know, it's kind of trying to make clear that they are determined to be relevant in Washington. Now, obviously, concerns then are, are sort of arise from some of the practical consequences of, of, of the decisions around the integrated review. For example, the decision this week to announce a cut of 10,000 troops in the British Army, to, I think it's just below 80,000, meaning the British Army will, after those cuts, be at the, its smallest it's been in 300 years. And I've heard, obviously, some you know, senior members of the, of the US military establishment, they've raised an eyebrow at this in terms of what does this mean in terms of what the UK will actually be able to do. Hmm. Its staunchness as an ally is never in doubt uh, in Washington, I imagine. But in terms of its practical ability, what does this ensure? The, how can the UK support broader kind of transatlantic and US-European security objectives, NATO, etc.? This will be a matter of concern. And that ties into the kind of the last, the last kind of big thing is that there is a big EU-shaped hole in the integrated review. Like it or not, the relationship between the UK and the EU is going to be of fundamental importance to the UK's foreign policy for the long term. And that relationship is really at a nadir at the moment. And the fact that it's the EU barely gets a mention in the integrated review is has to be a cause for concern because it's almost like the, the, the UK just doesn't want to think about this in terms of its potential importance for, for security and defence. And like it or not, a lot of the UK's European NATO partners who are also in the EU, they view the EU as an increasingly important actor in the context mm. of foreign and security policy. And so the UK is going to at some point, certainly the current government at some point, is going to have to come to terms with that and think about ways of engaging with the EU and sort of foreign security and diplomatic policy in a more positive way. Whether they will or not, I don't know. But this feels like an opportunity missed, if you like, to draw a line under Brexit and say, we have this new pragmatic relationship with the EU, etc., etc. This is part of our part of our thinking, but we're not going to ignore it. And what they're doing at the moment, it seems, is just pretending it doesn't exist. Just starting off with that that most recent point, it definitely seems like on the American side of the aisle that by making so little notice of the European continent within a defense review, that Britain drew a very clear distinction that we are very much on our own. We are very much independent of the EU's superstructure. Not that the EU is particularly oriented to defense, although that's been a rumor from Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel possibly wanting something like that in the long term. It really is much more of a NATO domain, but nonetheless, just further reinforcing that idea indirectly, I would say maybe of sovereignty and of of Britain apart and and standing on its own. That's quite right. I mean, the UK has obviously made very clear that NATO is the primary defense and security actor on the European continent. But there's nothing new in that. That's been a kind of an article of faith in sort of European defence, UK defence policy for decades. I think the concern, though, is it feels almost like a deliberate 
blindness or deliberate mm. uh, avoidance of, of the reality that for the UK's you, other European partners, the EU is a really important sphere or venue or context within which big questions of foreign security and defence policy are discussed. And like it or not, you have, you know, even if you don't want to be part of it, you have to recognise that other states who are important to you value it. And you cannot simply engage with these states on a bilateral basis or through NATO. You have to find a way of thinking about, well, how do we engage with states in the context of the European Union? Because they, you know, they produce and develop collective foreign security and diplomatic policy, even if they're not a big defence actor. And I don't think they ever will be. And that's, that's fine. But on foreign policy terms, in terms of big issues, in terms of how does, you know, how do you build a, a US European response, for example, to concerns and threats from, from Russia, concerns over Chinese policy, you know, big policy issues like climate change, etc. You cannot ignore the fact that the EU is a very important vehicle for your European partners. And you have to acknowledge that, I think, even if you don't want to be a part of it. And that feels to me like a significant weakness in the integrated review. One of the things that I would say was also very interesting about the integrated defense review is how holistic it approached the subject of defense, like really attempting to eschew the idea that defense is purely hard power or uh, the number of jets in an air force or the number of ships in a navy. You know, Boris Johnson and his sort of prologue or introduction that he wrote to it in the document, if you will, mentions securing status as a science and tech superpower by the end of the decade. You do see kind of continuation of what I believe the British defense establishment is called the fusion doctrine, where you're integrating more departments, integrating more technology, integrating data, considering topics like climate change as a security issue, which we've seen echoed in the United States with the elevation of that topic to the National Security Council in the economic and trade fronts as well, you know, talking about the presidency of the G7 that Britain will have over the summer. He even goes so far as to mention the union between England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland proving its worth and sort of setting that forward as an aspect of UK defense and security. It was... Uh, do yeah. you feel that um, do you feel that across the board across all of these positions that this is how Britain will truly view defense going forward as is a holistic and diversified position so that perhaps is that just a short term justification where they can they can cut back on some troops you know inside the, the army but still say hey we have a broader picture or is this truly an ambition to to reorient to what they feel is the the battlefields and the topics of the future I, I mean, I definitely think it's the latter. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, this this review has been, you know, this has been long in the making and it's been conducted by, you know, people in the sort of defence and sort of the pole mill establishment who, you know, who will be thinking an awful lot about these and be thinking about, well, not just what is the threats of today and tomorrow, but what are we looking at in the 5, 10, 15, 20 years? And I think in that sense, it's, you know, an integrated review makes perfect sense and, is, and arguably long overdue. And I think recognising that defence and security now encompass a whole range of things as you say, it's not simply about you know traditional conventional forces. It's thinking about cyber. It's thinking about trade. It's thinking about intellectual property. It's thinking about you know how we engage in sort of bilateral relationships. It's thinking about whether or not there are alternatives to kind of formal multilateral structures. How do we who do we work with? Where do we work with them? What context do we work with them? And having a more agile if you like, agile military and defence structure is really important. Tapping into the obvious, our obvious capacities in science and research and development, high tech, etc. You know, there's a lot of things we could do very well in the UK, and it makes sense to try and build these in to a broader view of how we will engage with the wider world. I'm just not sure. I mean, it is, I suppose, intentionally a kind of a much higher level strategic document that basically says this is the broader pathway we want to follow. What will be interesting then is to see what the actual policies are that are put into place to make this happen and obviously 
it's something that's going to have to be carried out over a lot. It's not just going to last up until the next election. It's going to last for a longer term. And the degree to which it outlasts the current government, for example. And I do think the reference to the union, of domestic union, if you like, was an interesting one, because I think that is in part reflecting the fact that there are significant concerns within the government about the state of the of the union as it currently stands. There are a lot of tensions, obviously, with around Scottish independence, but obviously also Northern Ireland is a big concern in the sense that, we, you know, the ties that bind the four home nations together have been, if not weakened, then certainly been under significant strain since, since the referendum in 2016. An awful lot of perhaps unanticipated or anticipated but, but ill-considered consequences have come about from this. And this is why we made my point earlier about the fact that British politics was upended by, by Brexit. This continues. And... The relationship between the, the kind of, if you like, sort of Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales with England is going to remain a big issue. And certainly if we get to a point where we are looking at realistically Scottish independence or we look realistically sort of 10, 15 years from now to the potential for Northern Ireland to leave the United Kingdom to reunify with the rest of Ireland, that's going to have major implications for UK foreign policy and how it does it. Not least, for example, just, you know, a very practical example, Britain's tried trident capacity, the submarines that, that carry our nuclear warheads are based in Scotland. What happens if Scotland leaves the United Kingdom? What do we do then? How does that play out? So there are all sorts of really complicated but practical issues that, that relate to how the UK itself maintains that union in the coming coming years. And so that will be a perfect example, if you like, of, domest- of the domestic aspect of foreign policy that will be of great concern to people in Whitehall and in government. When it comes to the focus that when hard power was mentioned in the document, I feel like it definitely had a naval bent to yes. it in terms of referencing the HMS Queen Elizabeth, of course, to be joined by a second carrier in the near future, the tilt to the Indo-Pacific, as you said, and of course, that very clear and yet very, I would say, an intentionally vague response towards China and the rise yeah. of China overall. You know, it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast this week from Mark Leonard in the European Council on Foreign Relations where he interviewed former cabinet minister Joe Johnson, who held positions as minister yeah. of state for university science, research, and innovation, and in particular speaking and, about and the prime minister's brother as well. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't know that. That's uh, that's good to know. Yes. Interesting because they they focus on the science aspect, but I think you could really echo it across many different fronts of the UK-China relationship. And this is a debate that I see happening all over social media and the academic and policy world which is how do you cope with China? Is it a cold war? Is it a competition? Is it a strained partnership? To what degree of resistance do you provide to the second largest and in some regards, you know, certain metrics, already the largest economy on the planet? And he mentioned something that was interesting. He said nearly a third of all British influential scientific research projects in the civil sector and, and in general are partnerships anymore in the technology space with Chinese researchers. And yeah. it, would, it would be impossible to truly decouple without great harm to the, the British research industry. And we also see the yeah. naval emphasis of a tilt to the Indo-Pacific. So how do you think, in your view, I know it's, it's a big prediction to make, but how do you see global Britain responding to China on, on a, I don't know, a three to five to 10 year basis where we do have this tilt to the Indo-Pacific this emphasis on naval power, which obviously reaches clean around the world, even in the South China Sea, but also this increasingly, you know, ingrained recognition of a dependency and, and a partnership on science, on technology and, and in economics with China. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a really, really good question. Without wishing to sound facetious, I'd say phrase, in, in one sense, they need to tread very carefully, <laughs> yes. um, given, you know, it's, it, but I mean, that's not just, not just the UK. 
I mean, I think the EU's trading relationship with the United States, I've heard it being described as one of competitive interdependence. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably a similar way of thinking about the relationship between not just the UK and China, but, you know, Europe and China, the US and China. There will be tensions and antagonisms. I mean, I thought it was interesting at the recent meeting between, you know, high-level Chinese officials and Tony Blinken in Anchorage that there was, you know, a frank and open exchange of views But I suppose at least both sides knew where they were coming from and they knew what was going on. And I think what we'll see is, certainly with the UK side, there'll be pragmatism runs through all this. We work with China where we can. We will seek to kind of critique them where appropriate. Um, It remains to be seen, of course, and this is a big test of global Britain, how the UK will be able to do this with its newfound independence and sovereignty from the European Union as, if you like, a lone actor. How does China view the United Kingdom? And this is where I think we come back to the point of having, you know, you you need to have allies. And I think there is a strong sense of shared interest and common interest and concern, not just between London and other European capitals, but also across the Atlantic as well, as to China's potential as a disruptive actor, as a potentially, as, as if you like, a negative actor, and a recognition of the need to find a way to, I, I think containment is entirely the wrong word, but to be able to interact and coexist with China, depending on what the sort of Chinese Chinese government wishes to do. And certainly, UK Foreign Secretary says, you know, China, China's not going anywhere, which is kind of a, kind of a fairly blind statement. But <laughs> there's, a, there's a truth in that, in the sense that we have to find a way of, of managing that relationship, and we have to be honest about the degree to which we can and cannot influence China and the degree to which they can, if they wish to, negatively affect us. I mean, obviously, just today, there were kind of, there was an announcement of China placing sanctions on a number of UK-based politicians, particularly politicians who've been critical of Chinese regime and critical of what's been going on in Xinjiang province and the treatment of the the Uyghur minority. This is, if you like, going to characterise a relationship. It's never going to be an easy one, I suspect. China is going to continue to flex its muscles and it's going to expect the world to listen when it speaks and you know the world and you know certainly sort of the, if you like the kind of sort of democratic powers need to be aware of to what extent there's a kind of common purpose between them and how they deal with and respond to china and i think that's that's if you like the big geopolitical challenge i'm not sure if the integrated review offers any answers to that but i do think it's important in the sense that it says this is if you like the key geopolitical question we need to be able to answer in terms of uk foreign policy over the next sort of 10 15 years so that's so People will be thinking about it and focusing on it. But as you say, I think it's going to be, as, as, as the US-China relationship is, I think it's going to be characterised by, you know, peaks and troughs and potentially more troughs and peaks, who can say? Um, if that's not, well, if that's not well geologically said. impossible, but you know what I mean. Yes, some potentially significant changes in the European continent over the next 12 to 18 months in the form of elections in the two biggest and arguably most important economies and, and political leaderships that have remained since yeah. London has departed yeah. the EU structure, which would be Germany and France. And of course, the German federal elections being September of this year, and we're about a year out from the French presidential elections first rounds taking place in April of 2022. Yeah. Is Britain watching these things at this stage, or is it too early on for the establishment in London to be, to be paying attention or thinking about this? And you know, if so, at some point, if that observation begins, if that investment begins, what would be a good outcome for the United Kingdom in the election prospects? Uh, no matter how you slice it, Angela Merkel will be departing after a very long time in the case of Germany. And currently, Emmanuel Macron's polling numbers are deep underwater and, and have been in the negative numbers for most of his presidency, which throws into doubt 
you know, his continuity going forward. What would be an ideal outcome for, for London in, in these results for Berlin and, and for Paris? That's a very, very good question. I'm not sure they necessarily have a clear idea themselves. Mm. I think the big concern will be instability and instability that could play further into damaging the, the, sort of the, U, the sort of broader UK-European relationship. Although if there is turbulence, they may well see the opportunity, if you like, to try and exploit that to, quote-unquote, improve the, the trade and cooperation agreement they've got with the rest of the EU, although mm-hmm. I think that would be quite a kind of risky strategy to go down. It's a year out. It remains to be seen, obviously, whether Macron can defend his position and be re-elected. Obviously, we saw, you know, in recent times, a series of one-term French presidents. So there's no reason to assume that Macron will be re-elected. I mean, the French French sort of politics seems to be quite turbulent at the moment. Fair to assume that Marine Le Pen, the far-right leader, is likely to make it to a second round. So who will be her opposition? You know, could, is it like to be then a kind of a, a right-wing or centre-right politician who can gather up the rest of those votes. Jacques Chirac did against her, her father sort of 20, 20 or so years ago. So it's too early to tell. But certainly, you know, there's a lot of kind of positioning going on. I think uh, M- Michel Barnier, who famously negotiated the withdrawal agreement with the UK, I mean, he's, he seems to be positioning himself for a, for a run at the presidency on the kind of, you know, to kind of representing, if you like, the centre-right. So, yeah, watch the space as far as the French go. In terms of Germany, I mean, I think that's, that's the big one because it is, all change. I mean, I say all change. Obviously, it can take the Germans quite some time to put together coalition governments. So just because Angela Merkel is due to leave office in September doesn't mean she will. She could stay on as caretaker chancellor for a number of a number of weeks and months while co- coalition negotiations take place. At the moment, it's looking like it will be some kind of combination of Chancellor Merkel's party, the Christian Democrats, potentially with the Greens, who are looking like the strongest if you like, progressive, so progressive parties, not necessarily centre-left, but certainly progressive party, potentially the economic liberal party, the Free Democrats, some kind of what they call the Jamaica coalition because of the sort of green, <laughs> yellow and yes. black black colours, etc. of the flag. That would seem at the moment to be a possibility. I think certainly the Green Party is going to be a very significant player after these elections. It remains to be seen if the SPD can come back, the social, the social Democrats, if you like, on the centre-left. But Merkel's party is... It's, it's suffering at the moment. It's done very badly in the last couple of weeks in regional elections. Its leadership is, shall we say, uninspiring under Armin Lachat, the minister-president of North, North Rhine-Westphalia, I think it is. And he's, he's her designated successor. But the way things work in Germany, there's no guarantee he will be the, the so-called chancellor candidate for the centre-right. Of course, there's still Marcus well, Sodar, Marcus too, as well, right? Precisely. Yeah, yeah. This, so he's, yeah, he's this, this, this star Bavarian politician. The Bavarians have their own kind of sister party, the Christian Social Union, the sister party of the CDU. And they may well feel that their, their leader is much more popular and much more likely to be able to garner the necessary votes to enable the CDU to be the biggest coalition partner. So... You know, again, it, it could well. It's going to be all change in Germany, and so the UK will need to be aware of. You know, so London will need to keep an eye on exactly who the kind of key the key politicians are. And I'm quite sure that the phone lines and emails, etc., and WhatsApp groups at the embassy in Berlin, for example, will be buzzing as they try to figure out as much as they can about the various candidates. Yes. So indeed. it's going to be, it's, you know, for everyone, this matters obviously because you know Germany is politically and economically the most powerful actor within Europe. And so who takes the chancellorship really, really matters. Thank you very much again to Dr. Nick Wright for coming on board the new diplomatist. He's always an honored guest here and a fascinating yeah. contributor to the podcast. We really appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Garrison. Thank you very much for having me back.